0: Hey, today, um, well, we do this every Sunday, but if you want to grab a Bible, today we're going through a series, uh, in this series of Advent, and Advent is the coming, the anticipation of Christ's coming, both in recognizing His coming in the first coming of Jesus Christ and then in His second coming. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, but in this series we've been looking at one verse in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we read it earlier, unto us. Child is born, unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, Isaiah is talking of a time in this prophecy some 700 years before the coming of Jesus, of a time when a new king would come. And in Isaiah's day, they desperately needed a new king, a king that would not rule with harshness or a partiality, but rather a king that would rule with mercy and justice. And the name of that king and the establishment of that kingdom would be in the name of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That this kingdom would be unlike any kingdom the world has seen. And so in Isaiah's day, they were crying for this kind of leader, this kind of president, king to show up. And so when the New Testament announced In the city of David, a savior has been born, which is Christ the Lord. That's the inauguration. You know that term? That's the beginning that the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father has shown up in human history. And he's establishing his kingdom. And in that kingdom, he wants counseling, mercy, mighty God, everlasting father to be the rule and the reign of that kingdom. Now, here's the beautiful picture. Yeah, it's not here complete, but see, God wants to bring his rule and reign through us. God's rule and reign is not here complete, but his rule and reign is wherever he dwells in his fullness. And the beauty of the Christian life is he dwells in us in his fullness. And so when we talk about generosity and be generous to our community, we are to go out into the world in the name of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, to bring his peace, his justice, his healing, his mercy, his generosity to the world. So today, in that spirit, we're going to discover what it means to know God as everlasting Father. And we're going to discover that in the book of uh, Galatians in chapter 3, we're going to pick up the end of chapter 3, verse 23, if you want to find that. And we're going to go into chapter 4. Paul's going to talk about two sendings. The Son was sent into the world. And he's going to say, the Son was sent into the world to make us the children of God but the Spirit was sent into the world that we might experience what it means to be the children of God. The Son was sent to make us children. The Spirit is sent so that we might experience the love of God the Father and know what it means to be the children of God. So as we jump into this two sendings, two realities, and in those two sendings and two realities, we encounter what it means to know God as our everlasting Father. You guys ready? You with me? I hope I'm ready. Let's jump in. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, We're no longer under a guardian. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave or free. There's neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Chapter 4. I mean... To redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me ask for God's help. Father, I thank you that your word is inspired and it's, it's incredibly useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. Father, each one of us is at a different place. Some of us need compassion, mercy. Some of us need to wake up. And through the power of the Spirit, your word goes forth and it accomplishes what it will. So Father, would you enable through the Spirit for your words to bring life and peace and reveal the truth that our God, our creator, who made all things and sustains all things, Is to be known as our everlasting Father. Father, lead us into this truth we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot of language here that if you haven't read a passage like this or not familiar with it, it can be incredibly confusing. A lot of stories of guardians, people watching over others, heirs, coming of age. But the story is really about the story of Israel, and Israel's the people of God during the time of Moses, leading up to the time of Jesus. See, from the time of Moses to the time where Jesus showed up as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the nation of Israel was under the law. And see, in the scriptures, it refers to the law as a guardian. See, back in first century times, uh, when you had a a child of a, a wealthy landowner, the parents weren't really involved in raising the children. They had a guardian, they had a babysitter, they had someone that watched over the child. And that person's success in life was based on the obedience and the success of that child. So if you're, an, if you're a slave in a wealthy home, and your job is to ensure that this child is obedient, that this child does what it's supposed to do, that learns what they're supposed to learn, that parents aren't engaged at all, you're probably not going to care for that child well because your success is based on that child's success. And so that guardian was known to be incredibly harsh very unloving, very difficult. And Paul is referring to that in the same way that he's referring to the law, that when the law showed up, when we were under the law, meaning we're under the demands of the law, the law is very condemning. The law is never gonna hug you. The law is never gonna say, way to go. Because as soon as you fulfill one obligation, the law comes around and says, yes, you did that, but there's another bit you still need to do. There's more to accomplish. And some of you, the difficulty, the difficulty we have when we start talking about the Everlasting Father, is some of you had a father who was more like the guardian, more like the law, than the God that we're gonna discover in this text. You had a father who was maybe condemning. His love was based on how well you performed, whether you obeyed things well enough, and as soon as you did one thing, there wasn't an attaboy or good job there was another law right behind it. The challenge we have is that we, in some ways, have to set, up, set aside our experience of our earthly fathers to experience the truth of our heavenly Father. And Paul is saying this law, when Christ came, we're no longer under the obligation of the law, but there's a new, um, a new covenant at work, and it's called the law of grace. So here's what I want to do. Jump back to chapter 3, verse 26, and here is how we become the children of God. In verse 26, he says it this way, for in Christ Jesus, and we're gonna talk about this word sons, because I know there's a lot of women in the room and you're wondering, well, where are the daughters? Why so much talk of sons? But he says in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That we become the children of God, not based on what we've done or what we can earn, It's not based on accomplishing the law, it's based on what Jesus has accomplished for us. And he's saying we become the children of God through faith in what Christ has done. And no longer does the law stand over us, telling us we're not sufficient enough. No longer is there a father standing over us saying, hey, you haven't done enough. Instead, what happens is the law of grace steps in. The law of the father's love steps in. And we have a new status and a new identity that is not something we could earn, but it was something given to us by grace. So watch this, watch the depths of this love in verse 27. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, we we saw last week we had a couple of baptisms that took place. Jesus said, repent and believe and be baptized. Well, baptism is a symbol that our identity is no longer in what we've done. Our identity is in what Christ has done. And so in a sense, we have put on Christ. Now in the first century, the way you could tell how important someone was, was based on the clothes that they wore. Their clothes communicated their wealth, their status, their influence. Today, it doesn't work the same way. I mean, you really can't tell where somebody's from or what they've done, what status they have based on what they wear, because in a sense, we kinda all wear the same things. Some of us just have more of it than others, but we essentially look the same. The first century, what you wore was a demonstration of your status. Now, realize what Paul is saying is when you put your faith in Christ, no longer are your titles, your wealth, no longer are those things the indication of who you are and your status in the world. Instead, Christ is. Christ is now your identity. Your identity isn't what you have. It's not on how many laws that you've fulfilled or how many ladders that you've climbed. Instead, Christ is now the thing that sets you apart in the world. So go out into the world with Christ as your identity. Now, what does that look like? What does that look like? Jump back into the text. Right In verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's not saying no longer do you see anyone as Jewish or Greek. No longer do you see anyone as male and female. Those things still matter, but they don't reflect our value in the world. My value in the world does not come from my maleness. does not come from my femaleness. It doesn't come from the fact that I'm Jewish or Greek. It doesn't come from the fact that I am a slave or a master. My value in the world comes from the voice of my father. My value in the world comes from the fact that I am accepted through Christ. And these distinctions, whether I got A's or F's, whether I was the valedictorian or the guy at the bottom of the list, that does not determine my status, my worth and value in the world. I'm walking out and I'm wearing Christ. I'm wearing Christ on my body. And when I'm encountering the world, I'm not meeting the world wondering how do I stack up. I'm meeting the world seeking to share the love that God, that God the Father has given me with a world that desperately needs to know that they matter to the Father. These things no longer matter. They're not what set us apart. Instead, we are all one in Christ. So watch this, verse 29. What does that gain us? If you were Christ, then you were Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. See, God made a promise to Abraham through you, ready for this, all the nations of the earth are gonna be blessed. That's a pretty big promise. That's a pretty big law. In a sense, if you thought, hey, that's up to me, I gotta bless all the nations of the world, that'd be a challenge. But see, the promise that we have through Abraham is what we're gonna see in chapter four. So what is the promise we have because we put our faith in Jesus? The promise is that we are now the children of God. The promise is we're the children of God And our standing with God isn't based on how well we're doing. The promise is that we're the children of God and God's love for us isn't based on my performance. It's anchored in the security of what Christ has done, that his love doesn't shift. You know, if God and I were chatting and your name came up, and sometimes it does, what, what do you imagine God would say? Because I think all of us in general, we say, you know, God loves us, right? Okay, we get that. We've, we've sung the songs. But if your specific name came up and we're, I'm in his presence, what are the kinds of things that God would say? Would God say things like, you know, I'm crazy about him. I'm pleased with her. My, my thoughts are constantly drawn to her. Or is the voice that you hear, my love's running out for her. My patient is thin when it comes to him. I don't know if I can continue in this relationship. See, are we under a guardian of law? Are we under the rule of grace? See, when you think of God the Father and the way he relates to you, it tells you, are you a slave waiting for your day of freedom or are you an adopted child secure in the Father's love? You can often evaluate where you stand just based on the way that you imagine God thinks about you. See, The amazing thing that Paul is saying that Jesus has accomplished is it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your economic status. It doesn't matter, guys, the clothes you're wearing right now, whether that makes you important or not. The only thing that matters is faith in Christ and what Christ has done and that the Father's love is secure upon you. You are a child of God. Your adopted son, a daughter of the king. So, watch this in chapter four, he's going to explain that. He explains it in verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. Again, we're going back to this language. Here's this child of a wealthy landowner. And right now, until that child reaches the age of responsibility, He's no different than a slave, meaning he's got rules, obligations, responsibilities. He he doesn't have the freedom of owning the land, but he's under law. And he's saying, likewise, before we come to faith in Christ, we're all under law. Now, we're under God's law and that there is a just demand in life for how we are to live because we owe God everything. That's what Scripture teaches. He has created us. He's given us life. He's given us talent, skills, abilities. We owe God everything. And so there is a moral reality. There is a justice reality under God. But see, there's another reality. Some of us may reject God's law, but that doesn't mean we don't live under law. See, we live under our own law, but it is just as condemning in the sense that we cannot live up to it. I mean, how many of us look at ourselves and say, hey, I'm not young enough, I'm not old enough, I'm not wealthy and I'm not successful enough, I am successful enough. We're constantly laying up these laws. And once we pass one law and cross one, one path and one course, we go to another, and another law comes up behind it and says, yes, you've done this, but have you done this? And maybe it's not a law in terms of life, it's a law in terms of voice. It's the law of parent. It's the voice of a parent, the voice of a spouse, the voice of someone that we have hurt, someone that matters to us, but maybe they're gone, or maybe that relationship can never be restored, and because it can't, it becomes a law that says, my value, I'm not valuable because this relationship isn't right. All of us live under some kind of law, and, and based on how well we're doing, whether it's personally with relationships or in success in life, we either see ourselves as valuable or not valuable, we see ourselves as significant or not. And the beauty of the gospel says that's done. You're no longer a child waiting for the day of liberation. You have been liberated. And then you look at the Father and say, but God, what did I do? I haven't done anything. That's the point. Christ has fulfilled the obligations of the law so that you might be adopted as a son. Now, let me explain. When we talk about adoption in the first century, it's not like adoption today. Adoption today, we usually adopt uh, an infant, maybe a child, if a kid's lucky, maybe in their teenage years, they may get adopted. But in the first century, adoption was always between adults. Seems strange, doesn't it? It's between adults. So if, imagine if you're an adult, you're a slave actually, and this master does not have an heir, but you've worked with him, you've worked in his property, he has trusted you. And let's say you've got a lot of debts. Suddenly, the moment that that owner adopts you, Everything that he has, you have. Every past debt is written away. Every broken relationship is now mended because you now own the relationship the master has with the world and you own everything that that master owns. This is the language of adoption, that when we put our faith in Christ, we suddenly become heirs of everything that Jesus Christ has earned. doesn't seem fair, Certainly not for Jesus, but we have everything that he's done. Now, we're going to see the depths of that truth in just a minute, but he's saying that when Jesus came and we put our faith in him, no longer are these set of laws over us. No, our identity is fully established in the fact that God loves us because he has adopted us through Christ. So watch this, verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So here's the explanation, verse 3, in the same way, We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time has come, so here's the advent, here's Christmas. When the right time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, meaning under the demands of the law. Now why did he come? Why did Jesus live? Why did he die? Why did he rise again? If there's any verse you want to underline, here it is. To redeem those under law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, let me address the issue for the women. Why not daughters? See, in the first century, the heir, there was only one heir, was the firstborn son. Doesn't seem fair. It isn't fair. Women were not valued in the first century. But the firstborn male, he received the estate. What's happening, Paul's doing. This is radically subversive. He's changing and altering the cultural values of the day. He's saying, man, realize those women that have just trusted in Christ, they're equal in value and status before God as you are. That would have caused a revolt in the first century, and it did. It did to the extent that you remember the first people to proclaim the gospel They're women. No one would trust the testimony of a woman except the everlasting father. That is the value. Our value is not placed on cultural norms. See, what's happening here is once we come into faith with Christ, those cultural norms are gone. And Paul is saying to this, this generation that's oppressing women, these women are firstborn sons. See, if we take that and just translate it as children, we miss the weight and the implication in that culture of the radical change that's happened in our lives. We have been redeemed. See, Jesus came to make us the children of God. Jesus came to make us the children of God, which means our motivation for obedience has now changed. Think about this. The depth of your love and intimacy with someone determines the amount of laws that you have. Just let it sink in a little bit. The depth of your intimacy and love for someone will determine the number of laws that you have. The deeper the intimacy, hear me, the fewer the laws. There are some very important laws in my marriage. Laws that if I break, the relationship could be in deep jeopardy. Now, if there is a law in your marriage or in a relationship that is that important, don't you think you'd write it down? Don't you think you'd put it on the refrigerator? Don't you think you'd have it like in the mirror when you get up in the morning or in the shower? Don't you think it'd be something you'd be reminding yourself every day? And yet I don't have to remind myself, do not commit adultery. Love compels, not law. When love compels, you don't have to have a list of laws. You're not afraid of breaking the law in the relationship. You're afraid of breaking the heart. You're afraid of disappointing the person. And realize in the gospel in Christ, it's the generosity of God in making us the children of God, even though I have not done anything that leads to this generous spirit that I don't want to obey God simply to avoid punishment. That's not that's not where I am. I'm no longer under a guardian. Now, see, I'm under grace. I don't want to disobey God because of the generosity of what he's done. And I don't want to disappoint the father's heart because I have seen the depths of how much God has loved me. And to the depths you see the intimacy that God has poured out to you, you will start to walk in that same intimacy. The challenge is we don't know the depths of God's love. Now, in part, we don't know the depths of God's love because we haven't had good fathers. And church, uh, man, you need to rewrite, you need to rewrite the understanding of fathers. That's our responsibility to rewrite what father love looks like by allowing the father's love to overwhelm us. But here's what John says, he says, oh how great is the love the father has lavished on us. Now now realize, he says, oh. Oh is not knowledge. Oh is experience. When John says, oh, see He's not not describing a textbook. He's not going true-false. This is not multiple choice. He's saying, have you encountered the depths of the love of God? Oh, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we, I, should be called the children of God. And then he says, and that is what we are. John never got over the love of God. Paul never got over the love of God to the point that he prays for us, that we would know how deep and wide and long and high is the love of Christ and that we may know this love that surpasses understanding. That God's love should get to a point that it doesn't make sense. Has God's love surprised you? And maybe maybe you say, well, in the past it did. Well, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is growth in the knowledge of the love of God. And to the degree you understand that God is your everlasting Father and he has loved you through Christ to the degree you understand that your standing with God is not based on how well you're doing or how bad you're doing. To that degree, you will obey out of gratitude and love for what the Father has done. Because here's the last thing. Jesus came to make us children. The Spirit came to make you feel like children. Do not lose the place of the Spirit in your life. Watch this. Watch this. He's going to say this in verse uh, 6. And notice this, because, verse 6, because we're sons, because we're adopted, here's the benefit we have. God has sent the spirit of his son. Notice, the son was sent into the world. Where is the spirit sent? Into our hearts. God the Father sends the son into the world, for God so loved the world that he gave but for God so love us, the children, that he sent his spirit into our hearts. Why? That we might cry out, that it might cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus came to make us children. It's the role of the spirit that causes you to feel like a child. Here's the challenge. You're not listening to the spirit's voice. Let me explain what that looks like. Here's, here's my life sometimes. Sometimes I'm at home, maybe it's my wife calling from the other room and the TV's on. And not only in my house is the TV on, I always got a podcast going and I got about five like Bluetooth devices that turn on as I'm walking through different rooms. And she hates it, right? Cause it's always, there's always something playing. I'm always moving around listening to something. Not only that, I imagine the kids are playing a video game. Maybe they're yelling with each other. So here's the TV, the radio, the podcast, the children. Are, my wife's trying to get my attention. Now someone's ringing the doorbell. There's one of those big trucks backing up and maybe the, the guy behind me, his tree fell over. So he's got the chainsaw out there and he's working on it. And not only that, the dogs next door are barking. Are you hearing all this? Is that your prayer life? You can't hear the Spirit's voice. What are the spiritual disciplines? It's learning how to turn off the TV, to shut off the radio, how to stop listening to the dogs barking. It takes discipline. You can't run out and just go up a 14er automatically and just run up there and kind of break the record. It takes time. It takes energy. Everything valuable requires energy. We have to learn to shut everything else off. It's not that the Spirit isn't speaking loud enough. We just don't know how to turn things off in our life. How do you turn it off? How do you turn it off? What is the spirit attracted to? It loves Jesus. That's all the spirit's into. It's got one one song, you know? It's got one station, one movie. It loves the story of Jesus. Why, 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 why does every book in the Bible start with these long theological statements? You know, Ephesians, it says, uh, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Get this, because he has blessed you. Jason, he's blessed you. See, when I read it, I say he has blessed you. But you know what the Spirit says? Jason, he's blessed you in in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Can you turn off that television for a moment and just get this in your mind? That he chose you in him before the create. Jason, he chose you. Jason, he chose you. Jason, he chose you in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. You are holy and blameless in his sight. In love, in love, he predestined you. Are you listening to me? What is scripture for? When we open scripture, there's gotta be a point where you gotta stop and go, Abba, Father. I'm not hearing you, Lord. I'm not hearing you. Why is God constantly reminding us what he's done? Because that's what turns the Spirit on. In a sense, it's what gets our heart and the Spirit's heart in unison so that we're in tune to his voice and we can start taking in what he says. We have to get into the Word of God, but not just get into the Word of God. We've got to see what it's saying about who our Father is, what he's done for us, and then we have to allow the Spirit to start heating things up. Heating things up that the TV is bugging you now, right? The radio is annoying you now. The sounds that once were your place of comfort are no longer a place of comfort, and you find yourself driven to the Father who wants to speak into your life. Church, how are we doing shutting stuff off? The Spirit cries out. We are the children of God, but we have to listen. And sometimes we have to listen to each other. We need community of people focused on the Father and are willing to be sometimes the voice of the Spirit in our lives. We're not perfect at that. We're not perfect at that. Sometimes the reason we don't hear is we're not listening to each other. And there are men and women in this room who are following Christ. And and it could be you want God to show up in a certain way on your timetable with the right kind of voice so that I don't need to be humble before my brother. That's not how the spirit of God operates because God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And if there is pride in your life, that spirit will communicate in a way that pushes you to humility. Do you hear me on that? Because often people say, pastor, I'm not hearing the voice of God. It could be the demands you're putting on God to speak into your life are not the demands that God's agreed to. Because notice as we end in verse seven, we are no longer slaves, but sons. And since we are sons, and we are daughters, God has made us also heirs. What does it mean to know our everlasting father? It means this, we have to focus and realize what God has done to make us children. We have to know and focus on what God has done to make us children, and that has to overwhelm us. We have to see the depths of his love and sacrifice for us. And then second, we've got to live the practice and the life of a son or a daughter. And here's the experience. Imagine this real quick as we close. A daughter is walking with her father. They're walking. Maybe they're going to a friend's house. They're going to the store. I don't know what's happening. They're side by side. They both know that they belong to each other. There's no doubt who the father is and who the daughter is. But suddenly, the father stops. He bends down. He picks up his little girl. He looks her in the eye and says, You are mine, and I love you. Jesus came to make us children. The Spirit has come so we can look in the Father's eye and hear his voice. You are mine. You are my daughter. You are my son. In whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. If you can't receive that through faith in Christ, you're not under grace, you're under law. Hear me. If you can't receive the Father looking at you, Saying, You are my son, whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. You're not relating as a son to a father, you're relating as a slave to a master. And Christ in the Spirit saying, It's done, it's done, it's finished. On the cross, He has finished the work so that we can be secure in the Father's love. Hey, I don't know where you are today. For some of us, we may just simply need to ask through the power of the Spirit, Father. What's keeping me from experiencing the fullness of who you are? For some of us, we need to get in community with someone that maybe prays a little more than we do, that reads a little more than we do, and just say, hey, what do you do? We need to humble ourselves and allow God's spirit and his voice to work in our lives. He is our everlasting father. And when he is operating as that in our life, the kingdom that we live out, the laws that flow out of us and the life we live looks like the life of God's kingdom wonderful counselor, everlasting God, Uh, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hey, let me pray for us.